0: Previously on the British Broadcasting Century. Well, actually, this time for the previously catch-up bit, let's have our two heroes, those rivals, pioneers, the first two DJs in Britain, Arthur Burrows and Peter Eckersley. They can do our previously catch-up for us.
1: 2LO started up. Meantime, other electrical firms had applied for transmitting licences. The other big companies started their transmitters at the same time, or a little later. These transmissions are going on just by sanction of the Postmaster General, but with no general idea as to how broadcasting was to be performed. It was clear that broadcasting must be placed on a sound basis. The Postmaster General was bombarded by requests from all sorts of bodies to set up a broadcasting station to do advertising in the American manner. The British government was cautious. People were beginning to wonder, how are we going to institute a service of broadcasting? The Postmaster General then appointed a committee, which is always the way to get out of a difficulty. Prolonged negotiations between the government and various interested parties. That committee was manned by people representing the radio trade. Who had applied for the right to conduct a broadcasting service. People representing the government. They made the very sensible decision. Look, you manufacturers, you want to sell receivers. You want to have a broadcasting service. Very well, you manufacturers get together. (laughs)
0: This time, part two of our two-part delve into the summer of 1922. Last episode we covered up until the end of May. This episode... June to August brings more negotiations in the boardroom, Apprentice style, and more songs from the studio, top of the pop style. Yes, we are persisting with those awful theme cover versions for one more week. It's a two-parter. So, will the two British broadcasting companies idea give way to one British broadcasting company? Well, I think you know the answer to that one, you know, spoilers. This is the British Broadcasting Century. Hello, hello, this is Paul
2: this is london
0: calling. ah your ears are most welcome on this episode 12 of our podcast deep diving where no podcast has deep diven before yeah there are a few books on this whole early bbc era the origins of broadcasting and so on but no podcasts that i could find to be honest i was looking for one to listen to and couldn't find one so i thought well better make one then. And uh, well, lockdown gave me a bunch of time without any stand-up gigs, because technically I'm a professional stand-up comedian and hopefully will be again. Well, I had a gig in a car park a few weeks ago, yet my only live gig since February, that was. So you, dear podcast listeners, are suffering instead of those live audiences. So I'm very sorry for the bad jokes that I crowbar into this otherwise genuine history of how Britain got its broadcasting. Now, thank you for those of you who've joined us over on Facebook slash BB Century and Twitter, slash BB Century, and even Patreon, slash Paul Carenza, K-E-R-E-N-S-A. A few of you have, and I'm ever so grateful. Head to those, do have a peruse, see if there's anything there you like, and if it is indeed a Patreon and you fancy supporting the podcast, to be honest, I'm only spending that money on books for a search for this podcast, so essentially you're just buying the quality of future episodes, because without the uh, stand-up income... Well, I would probably still get the book somehow. I would just steal them, which is no mean feat from an Amazon warehouse. Anyway, enough of that. Back to it. Last episode, we were entirely within May 1922, telling this split story a la The Apprentice, the British Apprentice, that is, for any uh, Americans who thought my Donald Trump impression sounded a bit cockney. Yeah, it's Lord Allen of Sugar. That's the boss in The British Apprentice that I was putting on the Postmaster General, who, yes, like Lord Sugar, essentially invited a couple of dozen wide-eyed, eager business types into a boardroom gave them a task, agree on how to do radio, and then just cleared off until they'd worked out how to do it. And, yeah, they formed two teams, while privately really out for themselves. Now, the other side of the story we're telling, though, was of music, a la Top of the Pops. Last episode, in May 1922, all of the music was coming from 2MT's studio in Essex, because 2LO London didn't have a licence permitting music at this point, and 2ZY Manchester were just pottering about randomly pressing buttons at this stage. But this episode... Music comes to London, five months before the BBC is born. Plus, coming up this episode, we will have more AMs and FMs from you, airwave memories and first-hand memories. So, shall we? Then, let's... (laughs) Well, that pathetic playing of the theme tune means, yes, we are back in the boardroom again. And just like on The Apprentice, the teams are not getting along. So it's June 1922. We're a month after Burroughs launches 2LO and Manchester has 2ZY, starting their test broadcasts. And the wireless manufacturers, that small committee of seven, have gone back to the big committee of 23. And then they've gone back to the post office and said, look, we can't agree. It's going to be two British broadcasting companies. So that's what's agreed. The post office say, fine, we'll split the country into regions and like on The Apprentice, the two different teams can run two different sides of things, independent of each other. Eight regions should cover most of the country. You've got London and Manchester with stations already. Birmingham are just starting up. Newcastle, Glasgow, Cardiff, Aberdeen and Bournemouth are also chosen as places to have radio stations built. And if Marconi won't share the patents, say the post office, well, so be it. If a station sets up without those patents and they can't function, then their license will be withdrawn. That's a point to Marconi's, surely. Marconi boss Godfrey Isaacs is determined to cover the entire country. And if that means Marconi gets to build every station, then they will. Ah, but there's a problem. F.J. Brown of the post office, who's basically like Karen or Nick or Claude or Margaret or Donald Trump Jr. or whoever your favourite apprentice boss sidekick is... F.J. Brown has unfortunately granted two licences in London. In fact, two licences to the Strand alone. You've got Marconi's 2LO, Arthur Burroughs' baby, and you've got Western Electric's 2WP, who are smaller, but they've got the weight of American tech behind them. They've got fancy microphones and everything. Two stations on the Strand. That's like having BBC London and BBC Other London. These British airwaves are in danger of becoming as busy as America. Right. So now pay attention to this bit or skip forward a minute. Doesn't really matter. In Birmingham, though, there's also been a new license granted to 5IT, granted to General Electric, but they don't have a transmitter yet. So Brown convinces Western Electric, who own London's second station, 2WP, to basically move their transmitter to Birmingham to join forces with General Electric. So 2WP will close in London and later in the year, its transmitter will be sent by Steam Tractor to become Birmingham's regional BBC station, 5IT. They will start regular broadcasting the day after the BBC launches in London. So, are you keeping up? That means we've got London with 2LO, Manchester with 2ZY, Birmingham will have 5IT, three British broadcasting stations under one British broadcasting company. Back in the boardroom, June 21st, that small committee discuss the money offer from the General Post Office. Peter
1: Eckersley. Well, said the Postmaster General, subscribe the capital for a company, which we will call the British Broadcasting Company, and I, the Postmaster General, will give that company a licence to do broadcasting in Britain, and I will give it an exclusive licence to do broadcasting in Britain. You are not to do any advertising, you are to be a public service.
0: The British wireless manufacturers also ask for protectionism, a ban on European wireless manufacturers for two years, and that is agreed, but good luck imposing it. Foreign radio sets will, I'm sure, sneak in. But they realise that if you're getting money from selling radio sets, then that's soon going to dwindle. Once you've got a radio, you'll stop paying for it, and actually a lot of people will just build their own anyway.
3: So how else do you finance the BBC? Here's broadcasting historian Tim Wonder.
2: Marconi's business model for 20 years, which has grown Marconi's to be the the largest company company in the world, is based on point-to-point communication. So you put a radio system over here, which you get paid for. You put a radio system over here, you get paid for. You staff it with your own people, which you get paid for. You take a percentage of every message that's passed. Every now and again, you upgrade the equipment, you maintain it. That's a business. It works. Point-to-point communication. In broadcasting, I sell you, Paul, in Guildford, a transmitter. For uh, I set the money and I walk away and then you broadcast to people for the next 20 years because it's a great transmitter, it lasts forever, and they all listen in for free. Think about it, that problem has echoed through the last 100 years and that's how the BBC, how do you
0: finance that? Well yes, a licence fee, an ongoing annual charge that will help to fund the broadcasts. A licence of 10 shillings, split 50-50 between the post office and the manufacturers, is agreed on, and higher royalties on radio sets. So now it's a bit more like the Dragon's Den. They're arguing over a 50% stake, etc. But all of this is still heading towards two separate broadcasting companies. The, uh, I don't know, the Southern Broadcasting Company and the Northern Broadcasting Company. SBC and NBC. That's been taken. I don't know. They never settled on names. Look, it's all getting a bit heavy. Let's have some music. Music <laughs> The day after that meeting, June 22nd, back at ground level, the Marconi Company are selling radios to the people. They are creating listeners at a huge live radio demonstration event in Peckham in South London, and people turn up. There's a large collection of instruments, radio sets, and it's all labelled the miracle of broadcasting. They play excerpts from 2LO. Arthur Burroughs, live from the Strand, which has a range of 40 miles at this point. Remember that 2LO is a demonstration station. It always has been. So sometimes Burroughs would broadcast and sometimes he'd be there in person playing in the live feed.
1: One cannot recall those early days without smiling. There was something big, even colossal, conveyed in the
0: nature of the contract we had undertaken. He would tour institutions and clubs, fancy garden parties of VIPs. One public demonstration even occurred in Burroughs' own house in Wood Green in North London. So this is less top-of-the-pops, more Radio 1 roadshow. And these demos are going beyond dry lectures of this is what radio is. At these demonstrations, Burroughs would normally tag on a 12-minute talk, how lovely and precise, about the romance of the new medium, as one review puts it. The 2LO licence is ever-evolving. They have to reapply each time for a new one. So two days after the Peckham demonstration event, Burroughs is finally allowed to play music. And the first proper broadcast concert occurs that night, 24th of June, 1922. It's sponsored for the garden party of Sir Trevor and Lady Dawson of Elstree, of all places, just north of London. Yes, London's first broadcast concert happens just yards away from where the Queen Vic and Albert Square is today, in Elstree. Well, the concert is broadcast from the Strand, but it's piped into Elstree for the garden party guests. Radio is clearly becoming the height of fashion at this point. That concert features the cellist Beatrice Evelyn, who comes across just brilliantly. The pianist Ethel Walker, who comes across so-so, they said. And baritone Charles Knowles, who comes across terribly. So the reviews of the day said. For this first concert, the microphone in the studio was placed in the middle of the room with the cellist, the pianist and the singer at appropriate specially measured distances to try and create a balanced
2: sound. Mixing desks would soon follow. It's not a very good concert. It's very much back to your now here record entitled, but there is a difference. It is in the heart of London. Back then, three million people can listen in. All the big supermarkets, Fortnum and Masons, all put in radio sets and people crowd in. This is good for business. It brings people in. So you're going to listen to the radio and then buy a pot of marmalade. This is, this is fantastic.
0: Arthur Burroughs and Tuolo, they evolve all the time, just like their licence. Burroughs is a perfectionist. He's no engineer, but even though he doesn't quite know how to get it, he knows what he wants. And what he wants is good acoustics. He seeks advice on the best drapes for the studio, his eyes on the goal of perfecting future broadcasts. And if no one will tell him how to do it, he'll be a bit sneaky. He actually says in a letter on June the 30th of that year, We note from several photographs of American broadcasting stations that not one of them uses a conical horn for a microphone, but that with one exception, a small hollow cylinder is employed. Yes, you remember that giant cigar box microphone that Dame Nelly Melba sang into? That finally vanishes. The standard small cylindrical microphone steps in. But it's all very hush hush, ideas poached from company to company. And yes, the Metrovic 2ZY camp, they will not be outdone by a Marconi 2LO concert. They see Burroughs and his winning ways. So they appoint a director of programmes to a former World War One flying ace, Cecil Lewis, at £400 a year. Cecil Lewis has never heard of broadcasting, but he's told that he'd be very good at it. He's rather dramatic, artistic, and he tells funny stories.
2: There was something which suddenly made it unnecessary for you to go to the concert. You hadn't got to go to the theatre. You hadn't got to go to the football match. You hadn't got to go anywhere. You could sit and the thing would come to you.
0: (laughs) Cecil Lewis will become a big shot at the future BBC, but in his first role, arranging shows for Metropolitan Vickers, he barely gets a chance to get going because July 12th, there's another meeting of the small committee. Remember, that's the big six companies plus one representative of the smaller radio manufacturers. That is, they're smaller companies. I don't mean they make smaller radios. I'm sure you got that. They've had an offer from the General Post Office, an agreement that these two British broadcasting companies can form. The manufacturers only quibble on funding. They don't think the post office are being generous enough with a cut of the licence fee. They do say the quality of broadcasting will suffer if they do not get enough chunk of the licence fee. Does that sound familiar nearly a century later? All they get back is this from the postmaster general. The post office is quite willing to take the question of funds into consideration if they shall ever have to make criticism of the broadcasting programme. In other words, you're not getting any more cash, but we'll bear in mind we didn't give you much if we ever think your programmes sound rubbish. That week, though, Isaacs of Marconis and McKinstry of Metrovic, they privately agree not to have two groups, but to work together, to have one British broadcasting company. Perhaps the competition would have been too great. Perhaps they're beginning to see each other as equals. At one point, McKinstry bluffs Isaacs with a blank folder that looks important, but really, he's not holding the cards at all. Marconis gave away a lot more than anybody. On July 17th, Isaacs of Marconis and McKinstry of Metrovic tell the small committee of their truce. The concept of two British broadcasting companies, you're fired. The two British broadcasting companies' plan is no more. There will be one British broadcasting company. To celebrate that moment, let's break off and have some AM, your airwave memories. Do email yours in as an audio clip to paul at paulcarenza.com. This time it's radio presenter Pete Hawkins.
3: Hi, I'm Pete Hawkins, a radio presenter and comedy writer from the Peterborough area. For me, earliest memory would have to be Ronnie Barker, especially his work on The Two Ronnies when he was doing the solo pieces Often in a suit as some ridiculous trumped up official from some government ministry trying to deliver something utterly preposterous and ludicrous to camera. And how he got his mouth round some of the spoonerisms and the wordplay was just a joy to behold and always, always deadpan he didn't react even though he knew what he was saying was ridiculous and hilarious and you could hear the audience reaction looking back now he has been such an influence on me with writing just knowing what you can do with language the joy you can have with just simply swapping a couple of syllables or a couple of words around he's an absolute gem and has been a massive influence on me
0: Pete writes and co-presents House of Fun. It's a three-hour comedy and music show on PCR-FM, Friday nights from 9pm. And he's also co-authored his first book, Fictoids, with comedian Andy Kind. They're bite-sized nuggets of information which are not quite as reliable as they first appear. You can find them on Twitter at fictoids (laughs) one Let's finish Britain's Summer of Music in July 1922. Arthur Burroughs presses his boss, Godfrey Isaacs, between board meetings to hire him a musical director. Stanton Jeffries already works at Marconi's. In fact, it was Stanton Jeffries who assembled many of those darn 2MT playlists. He sent them records each week, largely to be ignored by Peter Eckersley. Stanton Jeffries then, he gets the job because one day he pops from Marconi's downstairs to 2LO's cinema studio upstairs, and Jeffries sees six sopranos waiting in line to go into the studio. Mr Jeffries suggests to his boss that they need someone with musical expertise to ensure that London's ears never, ever hear six sopranos in a row ever again. He's given the job immediately. Jeffreys' office is, in fact, the studio when it's not being used. And in that studio, he soon starts announcing and running the show, eventually running the station, in fact, taking over running 2LO when Burroughs becomes director of programmes at the BBC. Stanton Jeffries joins Arthur Burrows as being a popular announcer and radio uncle for the children. Arthur Burroughs and Stanton Jeffries become Uncle Arthur and Uncle Jeff. But it's a shaky start for Stanton Jeffries. His very first night playing the tubular bells that Burroughs had employed as a way of emulating Big Ben's chimes, well, Stanton Jeffries plays the bells all over the place. Shocking for a musical director. Still, that's better than another occasion when Mr Jeffreys accidentally strikes his finger instead of a bell and lets out a loud shriek and possibly a rude word. FM, your first-hand memories. You can email us those in word form, as these three did. And I will say one of these three has joined us on Patreon. I won't say which one, but I love them for it. And you can join us too. Get advanced benefits and things, patreon.com slash Carenza So Chris Towndrow has emailed in. He says, I saw a recording of I'm sorry I haven't a clue in Guildford many years ago. Amazed that something which is not a visual medium is actually funnier when you see it live. And similar from Neil Jackson. He says in 1990, I was in my first year at Birmingham Uni as a massive fan. Oh, I'm sorry, having a clue. I naturally joined the university's Mornington Crescent Society. Every university should have one. And in December, they organised a trip to see a recording of the show at the Westminster Theatre in London. Still the classic lineup back then. Humphrey Littleton in the chair. And we were lucky enough to get to meet most of them in the pub afterwards. What struck me most, he says, was how low tech it all looked, especially compared to similar programmes on TV. Just a few tables with a few microphones on them. And finally, Bill Shaw's first-hand memories. He says working in radio is great because it's live, what with most of television being recorded. So in news, as a story breaks, you can get it on air very quickly over a mobile phone, from a radio car, or live straight into a news bulletin. He says, I love the buzz of live radio, knowing that what you say is being broadcast as you speak. Radio studios are places where people are concentrating, but also calm and professional. No one's running around screaming. I've seen a couple. I think the place that surprised me most, Bill says, was the BBC World Service newsroom. He stuck his head around the door when at Bush House once. It was so quiet, he says, and yet they were delivering bulletins 24-7 to an audience of perhaps 140 million people worldwide. Ah, good old Bush House quite a building and it's of course a descendant really of marconi house savoy hill the institute of electrical engineers it's all there on the strand or at least it was so finally for this week Burroughs would be on location at a garden party or summer fête, demonstrating radio and stanton jeffries that summer would be found in the studio running the show and so a new routine is set These shows become so regular that every time Arthur Burroughs stages these musical evenings, he's got his seven-point plan. Now, I know that we have various ex or indeed current BBC producers who listen to this. So if you had to put a show on air, what would your seven-point checklist look like? Well, this is the seven-point checklist of Arthur Burroughs whenever he had to put a show on air from the summer of 1922. 1. Apply to the Postmaster General for permission to transmit. Two, inform Mr Jeffreys and officer in charge of transmitter, also director, associated newspapers, and Mr Tilly, works manager, Chelmsford. Three, enter in Mr Burrow's diary and in the diaries of Mr Jeffreys and of demonstrating staff in Room 38. Four, check facilities for reception at the fete or garden event and agree programme hours. Five, on receipt of licence, inform Mr Jeffreys, officer in charge of transmitter and on-site staff responsible for the demonstration. 6. Details of hours of transmission and of the artistes taking part to be notified to all who have sent stamped postcards, director of the associated newspapers, editors of principal daily papers, editors of the four wireless periodicals, the general manager of Marconi and the Marconi phone department. 7. Immediately following a concert, a report to be supplied to Mr Burrows together with the exact expenses entailed in connection with the demonstration. It seems that 1922 radio and applying for a new licence each time was as simple as that. But I suppose you also need listeners. So next time on the British Broadcasting Century, radio is sold to the people at the first British wireless exhibition. And it's here that royalty first comes to the British wireless and the first outside broadcast. Yes, the OB, the HRH and the pre-BBC
3: This episode's bibliography includes the emergence of broadcasting in Britain by Brian Hennessy, 2MT Riddle by Tim Wonder, and the story of broadcasting by Arthur Burroughs, that he wrote in 1924. Yes, the full story of broadcasting as it was in 1924. It's not a big book.
0: The British Broadcasting Century is presented and produced by me, Paul Carenza. Original music is by Will Farmer. You can find us on Facebook and Twitter, at BBC Century, but you won't find us on the BBC website because we're nothing to do with them. Archive clips are public domain, as far as we know. If you disagree and wish us to remove your clip, we will humbly. Stay informed, educated and entertained. Join us next time on the British Broadcasting Century.